Good morning, Cornerstone. It's great to be here with everyone. Um, just want to bring greetings from those of us who are at Resolved. Uh, it's just been a, a great weekend so far for me, just having enjoyed a day with, with the fellow saints at Resolved. Um, yesterday, Pastor Steve Lawson and CJ Mahaney spoke great messages. And actually, before I came um, Saturday morning, Friday night, I got an urgent message from Pastor James on my on my phone. I got a text message. He put, he wrote, bring ramen. <laughs> he urgently wanted me to bring ramen the next morning. They didn't have it Friday night and they were desperately missing that. So, um, I brought it. I was uh, faithful to the task and, um, I'm sure they're enjoying it or they enjoyed it last night. Um, it's, it's great. It was great to just the energy of the singles ministry, um, spending time with them, just, uh, yeah, I did have a lot of energy, so it was great to try to keep up with them, and we had a great time fellowshipping together, um, and as well as uh, learning from God's Word. Um, I'm going to be heading back tomorrow morning to continue um, uh, Resolved. Um, I'd go back tonight, but um, there's a late game on, so <laughs> I'm going to don't want to drive during that. Um, well, <laughs> I'm going um, to... I don't have a transition. I'm just going um, <laughs> to... Read our text. You've heard it said that um, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Uh, our text this morning, you'll find Paul would agree. And turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 14. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all baptized into Moses into the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, take heed that he does not fall. No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. It's a familiar passage of Scripture, well beloved by many. Um, one of the sweetest promises of Scripture is found here in this text. I'm sure many have committed verse 12 or 13 to memory. And this morning, uh, I hope that Making this passage will serve to make that promise all the sweeter. Um, it was neat for me to realize that um, just learning new things from Scripture, 
each week, uh, just that this promise is in the context of idolatry, what was new for me to see. Um, we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. Let me begin by a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning, just thanking you for your word, thanking you for teaching us and instructing us, for loving us enough to not leave us to our own thoughts, our own ideas, but give me wisdom from your word. Thank you for um, providing for us through the cross all that we need for this life, for life and godliness. Thank you for uh, satisfying us with yourself, and let's pray that this morning you'd speak through me, that you would help me to, to teach what is only what only accords you with your word may may your word be taught clearly and accurately um, let's pray that you would just communicate truth through your servant I just um so thankful for this passage you've spoken to me so much already this week I'd just uh, be glad to just just share a glimpse of of how you've blessed me through it. So just pray that you would um, do that work in our midst this morning. And send to me pray. Amen. Just set up the context a little bit. Paul had been um, speaking on Christian liberty and in First Corinthians. He's been answering some questions uh, for the Corinthians. And um, chapter 9, he's he'd been talking about Christian liberty and gave himself an example of one who has given up Christian some liberties um, for the sake of others. He's exercised self-control, denied himself for the sake of another, and uh, particularly in the um, area of money and not taking money. Um, verse nine, chapter nine, twenty-four, twenty-seven. He speaks of having self-control as of an athlete in order to do this, yet know that all those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize. Run in such a way that you may win. And at first glance, you get to chapter 10, it looks like it seems out of place, seems like he's the subject, seems like he's moving away from this topic. But um, we find he's actually delving deeper into it. He's giving self as an example of one who's given up some Christian liberty, self-control, as a positive example, and now we're looking to Israel to see a negative example of, of a people who did not exercise self-control and did not um, choose to to limit their their liberty for the sake of another. Um, Paul wants us to remember what happened in Israel's history, uh, Israel's 40-year journey between uh, Egypt and Canaan. The sobering illustration of the misuse of, of freedom and the dangers of, of overconfidence. Israel is a prime example of that misuse of freedom um, that Paul is writing against. So, verse one, he tells us, "I don't, for I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be unaware. He doesn't want us to be ignorant of our past, our history. He doesn't want us to forget what God has done. And it's not just saying don't forget. He's saying remember. He wants us to remember." He wants us to actively be remembering um, what God has done and what um, in our midst and in, in His people's midst and what uh, it, what God's people has done, both positive and negative examples 
Um, in Deuteronomy 8, God writes, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Um, he wants us to remember how he fed us, fed you with manna, which you, when, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Um, your clothing did not wear out, your foot did not swell those years. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. And that you may forget, and in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 8, that your heart may be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. And the easy thing is to go to forget what God has done and then to you know, see all the blessings around you and it's because you forgot, because you're not remembering what, that it was from the Lord, that you deceive yourself in thinking that this has come from your own hands. And you, you look to your own hand and say, my power, my might has gotten me this wealth, or whatever blessing, whatever blessing it may be. So Paul wants us to remember, let's go back and look, just a quick, quick survey um, of the 40 years of wilderness. If you remember the story, you've probably seen the movie. Um, there was a time of slavery for the uh, God's people. Um, it was a, a, a difficult time. It was a um, it, it was a hard time. People were uh, just you know had hard life, hard labor, um, and it got to a point where they were being mistreated. They were asked to make bricks, and eventually they took away the straw and said, "You you find your own straw to make the bricks, but you still have to make the same number of bricks." And the people were groaning under this this pressure uh, from from the Egyptians, uh, but God promises to free them. And he begins and he, he brings them plagues to, to the Egyptians to, to get Pharaoh to free them. He brings them, um, he turns the water, the, the Nile into blood. He, he brings frogs, he brings gnats and flies and he diseases the livestock. He brings boils and thunder and hail, locusts and darkness and finally kills the firstborn. Um, and then by that time, Pharaoh, you know, he gives up and lets them go, but then he changes his mind. He says, you know, I, I don't want to let them go. I'm going to chase after, I'm going to kill them. And he pursues them with an army, and Israel looks back as they're walking away, with, and they find themselves being pursued by an army, and, and they're terrified. And they get to the Red Sea, and they're like, we're at a dead end. It's over. What's the point of having left Egypt if we're going to die out here? And at that moment, they find the Red Sea parting. And it's such such a familiar story to us, but just imagine being there for the first time, not knowing what's going to happen, thinking your life is over at that moment, and then to see the waters part, and God miraculously saving you, leading you through dry land, and then looking behind you, and finding the sea coming back together, and the sea engulfing the enemy. You're saved. Finally saved. And look in front of you, you see the desert. Now we just came from Palm Springs, and the desert... It, it looks all nice when you have golf courses everywhere. Every corner is a fountain. They want to make it seem like there's water everywhere. So you see water in every corner, but you know it's desert. It's a dry place. There's no not much food to speak of. Um, so they look into the wandering the desert and they think, well, how are we going to survive out here? But again, God provides for them. He gives them manna from heaven, 
And the word manna means, what is this? Because they looked at manna and they said, what is this? What is this thing? But it's, it was God's provision. It was bread from heaven. Um, it was a, God's way of providing for them each day. Uh, not only did he provide bread, but, but meat. He provided quail. He provided um, um, uh, water from a rock. It, the, our verse tells us that the rock followed them. And the Jews had this, had this uh, um, legend that there was an actual rock that followed the people. It, it was the rock that the water came from was so prevalent. It was so um, ubiquitous. Everywhere they were wandered, they would have that rock there where the water, the source of the water would come from. Their own sparklets just traveling with them in the camp that they just, a legend developed that it actually followed them and a, a rock was trailing behind them. God provided for them at every turn, even the clothing would not, um, their sandals and their clothes would not um, rot. He leads them by a pillar of, of a fire by uh, by night, a cloud by day, fire by night, with, which probably brought the added benefit of the cloud blocking the heat of the sun in the desert, giving them shade at, at during the daytime, cooling them down, and, and maybe at night, when when the uh, desert night gets really cold, the fa- pillar of fire brought some warmth to them, um, as well as just a, a, a day, nightly and daily reminder of God's presence. Scuttles with them, he um, he protected them, he saved them, and continued to provide for them. Yet, we know, the, we know the story, we know what happened. They continued to, to grumble, complain. Um, the people complained about the manna, the, the, the provision of bread, and that's why God um, uh, allowed them to have quail, to have meat. Um, Numbers tells us that the, the people complained in hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. They're calling their salvation a misfortune. And the Lord burned in anger, but Moses cried out, and Moses interceded on a number of occasions for, on their behalf, and, and the Lord relented. And as soon as that happened, they complained again. Numbers 11, verse 4, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel wept again, saying, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt and caught, that cost nothing? The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Now, I love garlic as much as anybody, but I just, can you imagine just like the, their, they were just saved. They were saved from, uh, from slavery. Not only that, but from sure death, being pursued by the Egyptian army, and then provided for bountifully in the desert, and they're complaining. Um, this, this heart of complaint um, led them to idolatry. Um, you remember that in the, in the desert, Moses went up to the mountain to receive a word from the Lord, and and uh, because he delayed, it says in Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered to themselves, themselves together and said to Aaron, make for us gods who should go before us. And he made them, he fashioned together a golden calf just because Moses was late. So we see the heart of these people who were idolatrous in their hearts. And Paul is pointing to this and he wants us to, to learn something from this story. He wants us to learn. He, 
he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all were baptized, all ate the same spiritual food, all had the same spiritual drink. They all had the same blessings. They were all saved. They were all provided for. They all drank the same spiritual drink. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. And that's an understatement. Most of them, all the adults over 20, were killed except two. Only Caleb and Joshua were faithful. Only Caleb and Joshua were allowed to enter the promised land. Not even Moses was allowed to enter. God was not pleased with most of them, except for two. Paul wants to remember um, the story and tells us why. He tells us in, in verse 6, these things happen as an example for us so that we would not crave evil things. That's his point. That's his first point. What's our first lesson from the past? To flee idolatry. He says it again in verse 7, don't be idolaters. He repeats it again in verse 14, flee from idolatry. This is written down so that we might not crave evil things as they also craved. Now, idolatry is a is an interesting topic. Why is it such an important thing that he would mention it here? Um, David Powelson once wrote that in his article, Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair, idolatry is by far the most frequently discussed problem in the scriptures. Idolatry is by far the most frequently discussed problem in the scriptures. I don't know if any of you knew that. That was a shock for me to hear and to discover. You know, sometimes you, you, you hear a topic, you learn something, and we've been learning from the pulpit these days, from, um, I've been learning from the elders and Pastor Dan and others just about idolatry and just, um, and just seeing it in my own heart. And, and sometimes you hear a topic and, you, you know, you realize, you start reading scripture and it's everywhere. And for example, I, I remember when I first was taught about God's, um, His concern for His own glory, the God-centeredness of God. When I first learned about that, I remember being skeptical, thinking it's a little, sounded a little selfish, a little self-centered, and, you know, like, is that really what, what the Bible emphasizes? And then I started reading and it seemed like from the next day, every time I read the scriptures, that's what it said. God does it for, he's, I'm doing it for my own sake, for my own glory, for my name's sake, I will do this. And, it seems like everywhere I read now, that's, that theme is, is throughout Scripture. And, and lately, as I've been learning about idolatry, I, see, I just see it everywhere. And I was surprised to find, even in this passage, this familiar passage, idolatry being the central theme of 1 Corinthians 10. It is by far the most frequently discussed problem in Scripture, not just in the Old Testament, but New Testament as well. Um, there are so many verses. I'll, I'll read you a few. Matthew 4.10, Jesus says to Satan, Go, Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 1 Corinthians 5.11 Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother who is a moral person, covetous, or an idolater. 1 Corinthians 6.9 Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the earth? Do not, perceive, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters will enter the, inherit the kingdom of God. In our passage, it's written twice. Do not be idolaters, verse 7. Verse 14, flee from idolatry. Galatians 5 lists idolatry as a, as a fruit of the flesh. Colossians 3, 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to 
immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which amounts to idolatry. Consider yourselves dead to covetousness, which is idolatry. 1 John 5.21 ends with little children, keep yourself from idols. I remember when I first read that verse, when we first studied at the church, 1 John, the big question at the end of the book was, how does that verse fit? How does verse 21 fit in? He's, nowhere in 1 John does he speak of idols or idolatry. Nowhere is it discussed. But he ends the letter with, keep yourself from idols. Could it be that this book about fellowship with God was really all about idols, idolatry the whole time? That it is idolatry that keeps us from fellowship with God. And he's summarizing his whole point of 1 John with that last sentence. You just even doing cursory look through First John, you find the language of idolatry there. Do not love the world nor things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boast part of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And Luther famously commented on the Ten Commandments by saying, all the other commandments seem to be based on the first. And his, what his point was is, if you break commandments 2 through 10, it's because you already broke the first commandment, which is not to commit, idol- not to commit idolatry, not to have any other gods. For example, if you don't lie, um, you don't lie unless you've already made something more important than God. Why would you lie unless you've already committed idolatry somewhere? Why would you lie unless um, man's opinion became more important to, than God? Why would you lie unless money was more important to you than God and you wanted to um, keep from getting a fine or, or being taxed or um, other things? Luther said, underneath every sin is idolatry in general. And he went further to say, underneath every idolatry is some form of works righteousness, some form of self-salvation project, some form of um, way to, to work your way to, to save yourself. Because whenever you make something more important than God, that thing essentially becomes a, a savior, a functional savior of yours. And that's why he believed that the first commandment is really telling us to believe the gospel and to look nowhere else, no other gods. So what's idolatry? We've got to understand this term. What is idolatry? Basically, it's just making anything ultimate. Any good thing or bad thing, it's not the issue, anything that takes the place of God as first, as first place. It's the typical, it's, it's the great exchange from Romans 121, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the form of corruptible man and birds and, and other creatures. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Um, it's not, we typically think idols, you know, there's no idols today, no idolatry today, and nobody bows down to a statue anymore. But idolatry was never reduced to just bowing down to a statue. It was always a spiritual issue. Idolatry was always a heart issue. Colossians 3 5 tells us that covetousness is idolatry. Job 31 described idolatry by putting confidence in wealth or your own ability. Job 31.24, he writes, If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, 
If I looked at the sun when it shone and the moon moving in splendor and my heart was secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be iniquity. For I would have been false to God above. He's kissing his hand in worship. My hands have done this, made this wealth. And his confidence is in himself, secretly enticed away by otherwise good things. That is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 5, 7. You should not bow down to them or serve them. It's not just an, an outward bowing down, but serving them. Sacrificing for them. Um, could be sacrificing time or money to these idols. Ezekiel 14 makes it very clear. It's about our hearts. When some of the elders came, Ezekiel 14, 1, um, to Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, these men has set up idols in their hearts. They set up idols in their hearts. Verse 6, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel who separates himself from me is setting up an idol in his heart. Anytime you separate yourself from God and look to something else, you're setting up an idol in your heart. So how does this work? How does, you know, how does idolatry look today? Uh, I think for me, Driscoll was uh, very helpful to clarify uh, how it looks for me in, in, in daily life. What he says is, he says what we do is we set up, we define for ourselves our own hell, a mini hell. Not the real hell, uh, but for us, um, our own concept of hell. It could be anything. It could be um, being bored or lonely or poor or sick. Um, and what we do is we look to something, a functional savior, to, to save us from the hell that we made up. And that's how idolatry works. For example, some of us, um, boredom is the worst thing. We just don't, don't hate to be bored. For us, it is hell to be bored. It's the last thing we want. So we look to pleasure. We look to something else to save us from boredom. Could be poverty. Could be um, that our our mini hell is poverty, and so you look to a job to save you from that hell of poverty. Could be loneliness. You, know, you want to be saved from the hell of loneliness, so you look to your friends to save you from that, or even marriage. You want a spouse to save you from loneliness, or some of us have uh, realized that friends let you down, so you, you turn turn to pets. Because um, you know, animal will not let you down as much as men, and that'll save you from your loneliness. Could be simple as being fat. You don't. You turn to a diet to save you from the hell of being fat, or to a gym, or to some people even surgery is our functional savior from the hell of being overweight. That's why some of us even turn to eating disorders as a functional savior rather than turning to Christ. And Driscoll writes, the hell of, some people set up the, their, the hell of childlessness and they look, they look at children to save them from that hell. They can't think of anything worse. It could be bad reputation, the hell of bad reputation and you look to man's opinion to save you from that. 
and that becomes the most important thing. Anything that you put as most important, as ultimate, at any given moment, could be an idol, could be what is replacing God at the first place of your heart. And ultimately, we often put self, we idolize self, and put ourselves as above God. And I think that's why I think fantasy, fantasizing is, is so um, appealing to us. Think about a fan, your fantasy world, whatever you're thinking about. It, it, it's that world where you're God. You're the God. You're the sovereign one in your mind, and you get to do and say whatever you want. And the people in that world have to respond the way you want them to. And that's what makes fantasy so appealing: that you get to be God. Calvin famously wrote that our hearts are idol-producing factories. I think, you know, we all know this. We don't, I don't have to convince you of the sin of idolatry and how evil and wicked, and we see even in our text how God feels about it by, by killing, um, killing those who were idolatrous. And so we're tempted to say now, you know, we got it. You know, Israelites are bad, bad example. Idolatry is no good. I want to be a good Christian, so let's get rid of our idols. Let's find out our idols, get rid of them, and um, and live a good Christian life. But I think Paul saying in verse 12 that we need to watch out. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed he does not fall. Not only is he saying we need to flee from idolatry, we need to flee, forsake self-reliance as well. We're tempted to think, okay, I have idols, I want to get rid of them, so I'll do it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, be a good Christian, remove these idols, you know, and do what's right before God. And we forget that I'm sure the Israelites thought that they were doing what's right before God. They thought that they were serving God. Um, they thought they were okay, but you gotta realize that if you think you're standing fast, if you think you're, once you think that you're doing okay in this area, get ready for a fall. I think verse 12 is telling us that we have no leg to stand on. We have no righteousness of our own. We can't sit here and say, okay, you know, idolatry, I, I've, you know, I've conquered that one, let's move on to a different sin. The only thing we can do is rely on Christ. only thing we can do is rely on His righteousness. So we have none of our own to stand on. You know, John 15, 5 says, apart from Christ, apart from me, you can do nothing. Second um, Corinthians three: We are inadequate, but not that we're adequate in our in ourselves. Second uh, Corinthians twelve: Paul boasts in his weakness. And so, and so then, what do we do? What do we do? And we know we have idols in our hearts. We know it's evil and, and what God thinks of it. And we know that we can't rely on ourselves. So, what do we do? And for me, a sermon I just read this week by Thomas Chalmers has been very helpful, very clarifying. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Uh, it was very hard <laughs> to, to read uh, this old language from a Scottish minister, but I think the main point is very clear. The expulsive power of a new affection. Basically, the idea is new affections have a power to expel old affections, to rid your, to rid your heart of old affections. Um, Bridges updates the language for us, and he says, the best way to disengage an impure desire is to engage a pure one. The best way to expel the love of what is evil 
is to embrace the love of what is good instead. To be specific, one must replace the object of our sinful affection with an infinitely more worthy one, God himself. In this way, we do not move from a full heart into a vacuum. Instead, we move from a full heart to a heart bursting with fullness. And the expulsive power of a new affection weakens and even destroys the power of sin in our hearts. Thomas writes, he gives an example of how this, of how this works. Um, a youth, he says, may cease to idolize sensual pleasure. So, you know, youthful pleasure, uh, we often, when we're young, idolize pleasure. And um, when you see a man growing up and growing out of that, we think, oh, he's finally grown up, he's a man, he's, he's removed that idol. But we don't realize is he may have removed, ceased idolizing pleasure, but it's because he idolizes wealth. He knows that he desires to make money, he knows that he can't get a job if he's goofing off all day. So he works hard. He stops going after pleasure. He's, he's working hard and studying hard, getting a good job. But all the while, he's idolizing money. And the same man might finally grow up to realize materialism is, is, is worthless, um, and he ceases to idolize money, um, but it's because he's drawn to something else, like maybe politics or some other ideology, and now he's exchanged the idol of money for the idol of power. Or the idol of, of moral superiority. And what Thomas is saying is that, that there's not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. Not one of these transformations where the heart is left without an object of worship, whether it's pleasure or money or power. So the human heart's desire for one particular object is conquered, but its desire to have some ultimate object of adoration is unconquerable. The thing is, you can conquer the idols in your heart or some affection, but you cannot conquer the desire to have an object in your heart. You always want something. You always desire something in your heart. And the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way to, 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 to remove the power of an of old affection is to put a new one in there. So it's not enough. This is what, this point. It's not enough to hold out to the world or to the church the mirror of their own perfection, imperfection and say, this is what you're doing wrong. Here's what the Bible says. You're committing these sins here, 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 and here. You've violated this law. You're, you're broken this law. You're a lawbreaker here and here and here. You can do that um, but it's not enough to just show them their own imperfections because they'll just change one idol for another. It's not enough simply to speak to the conscience, to speak of its follies. Rather, we must seek every legitimate me- method of finding access to the heart to put in there the love of Him who is greater than the world. And that's our goal, is to put in the heart um, to not, not only, he's not saying don't do that, he's saying expose with the mirror of God's word um, our imperfections but, so that we'll want to remove the idols, but we need to replace it with the love of him who's greater than the world. It, you know, 
idea came to mind that it's just like, you know, when you, the heartbreak you feel of, um, for an ex-girlfriend, ex-boyfriend, you know, you, you, you had that longing in your heart for this person because, you, you know, you've been with them. That's, that's, you know, your desire. But until you meet the one, that will never be replaced. You'll go from one love to another until you finally meet the, the real one, your, your spouse that God intended for you. And then, and then it's over. All other, um, desires for others have gone away and replaced with that one. And, um, and, it's, and this is why I think, you know, to be honest with you, when, you know, we've been talking a lot about the gospel um, at our church, and um, the elders have been, you know, I've been just sitting here learning it's with all of you, just trying to gr- soak it all in and grasp it. And, and I'm tempted to think, uh, just to be honest with you, that, you know, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. The gospel is what we need. It's the most important thing. Um, but, you know, I, I, I understand it now. You know, can't we just move on to, to something else? Can't we just, uh, shouldn't we just, you know, you know, now that we've got this, we've laid this foundation, let's move on to, to other topics. And I think I'm forgetting that once I do that, I'm back in verse 12, thinking I'm standing firm and getting ready for a fall. We'll never outgrow the need to hear the gospel. We can, we'll grow in understanding the gospel each day, each week, but we'll never outgrow that. We need to keep at the forefront remembering, not forgetting what Christ has done, um, not forgetting his faithfulness because it's only our, that our love, our love for God through the gospel that will expel all other rival desires in our hearts. That's why we need to keep asking the elders and the pastors to preach the gospel to us even as Christians each week. You know, so many of us and the gospel call that Christ gives us is, you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. And we come to rest in Christ and we turn around and want to go back to work. Like the Israelites, they're saved from slavery and in the desert they just they forget and they want to go back to Egypt. So we're learning lessons from the past. We learned that God wants us to flee from idolatry, not, not be like the Israelites, but also to forsake self-reliance. And he gives us this promise. It's this wonderful promise in verse 13. No temptation is overtaking you, but such as common to man, and God is faithful. And I used to think of this verse as a pep talk. I, you know, no temptation is overtaking you, except as common to man. So whatever I'm facing, I'm thinking... Okay, you're not the only one, Joe. Others have gone through this before. You're not the only one. They've done it. You can do it too. You can, you can conquer this temptation. Um, you know, you just gotta grit it out and do it. But I realize looking at this, this text in light of the context, it's not, it's not a pep talk. The c- central part of the verse is that God is faithful. It's God's faithfulness. If, if I take it as a pep talk, I take it like I can do it, I'm back in verse 12, thinking I can, I'm standing firm, getting ready for my fall. But God's telling us, no temptation has overtaken you, but it's calm the man. And, and uh, you know, the, as far as I see it now, it, the context here is idolatry. It's not that I used to I remember, I used to be tempted to think, yeah, I understand, everyone's common, but 
but no, no one can relate to my particular situation, my particular temptation. Nobody has, you know, my boss or my my mom or my dad or my sibling or or my wife. Um, this particular situation is unique, and it's just it's just a unique temptation. Uh, no one else can understand. And I tend to think that way. I think that the commonness is the fact that we all have idolatrous hearts. That's what's common to man. That's the common temptation is to want something more than God. And if, 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 this is, if Luther is right, if Luther is right that the first commandment, everything flows from that, then you know, going back to verse 10 to, to 11, um, or, or 9 to 11, actually, I'm sorry, uh, verses 8 through 10, um, where it speaks of not acting immorally, trying the Lord, testing Him, grumbling, all that is flowing from being verse 7, where He's asking Him, commanding not to be adulterers. Now, the key is that it's God who's faithful. He will do it. He will not let us be tempted. He will sovereignly work out every situation so we won't be tempted beyond what we're able to bear. But He'll provide an escape. And an escape will come in, in one of two ways. Either he, he may give you an escape route and remove the temptation. But more often than not, He will leave you in the temptation. And as the verse says, keep strengthening you so that you will be able to endure it. End of verse 13. More often than not, our escape route is God strengthening us by His grace in Christ to endure the temptation. And the picture is you know, Paul and Silas in, in the Philippian jail. You know, whether God opens that, that prison door or not is not the issue. He so filled Paul and Silas' hearts with Himself. The love of Christ was so filling their hearts that no matter how they were mistreated, they could sing in prison. So it didn't matter to them whether the doors opened or not, whether the trial, the prison of their trial was removed or not, whether they were able to escape the situation or not. God was faithful. And He um, put in their hearts, He strengthened them with His grace that they were able to to worship in the midst of their trial. And that is a blessing. God is uh, faithful to us and that is the issue. It is not our um, effort or work that's going to remove the idols from our hearts. It's not um, our own self-reliance that's going to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's by turning to Christ and the gospel and so filling our hearts with the, the wonder of what He's done and is doing now that will remove and expel all other rival loves and desires. And that's why we need the gospel today. That's why we need the gospel every day. So my encouragement to you this morning would be we need to flee idolatry, learn from the past, but remember, we don't we flee from idolatry, not to self-reliance, but forsaking self-reliance, fleeing to Christ. And God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we're able, but will provide the way of escape 
even if it means strengthening us through his grace to endure it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just your word this morning to so good to remind us to, of your grace, your faithfulness, which is new every morning. You remind us of the gospel and, and what you've done for us. You've saved us. You've redeemed us. You've adopted us as your children. You, you've accepted us based on Christ's work alone. We ask that you'd so enthrall us with the gospel of your son, the gospel of the good news of the cross, so until there's no room for any other desire or thought. All rival loves will be expelled by this greater love we have for you. And if we're tempted to think that it's not working, that we've, we've gone to the gospel and we still have these idols in our hearts, just you grant us a faith to continue to look to the cross and not look away until there's no other love left. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the, the, the beauty of the cross. Just help us, Lord, this morning to, um, to have the faith to fix our eyes on Christ. And thank you for your promises. Thank you for not allowing us to be tempted down what we're able. You know what we're able to handle on you. Either remove the trial or, or strengthen us in it. Either way, we can praise you and rejoice. And so we want to do that even now. We want to worship you with all our heart, soul, and mind. So we just give you all the praise and glory. In the Son's name we pray. Amen.